Hello everyone and welcome to the OMC Mindfulness in the Workplace podcast series. Each of these sessions explores a different aspect of mindfulness in various workplace contexts, as well as key themes that we believe will be relevant to you. I'm Leonie Schell, facilitator at the University of Oxford Mindfulness Centre, and today we're going to be discussing what mindfulness teachers need to know about workplace mindfulness research. My guest today is Silke Ruprecht. Silke is Head of Research and Development at Awaris. She has 10 years experience in mindfulness research as postdoctoral researcher at Radboud University in Nijmegen. She's also co-authored a number of studies on the impact of mindfulness on relationships at work and for leadership development. Silke is a senior lecturer at Leuphana University Lüneburg and masterclass facilitator at the University of Oxford Mindfulness Center. She has seven years experience in change management consulting in education and has been a meditation and yoga practitioner for 20 years. She's also a certified MBSR teacher. Welcome Silke. Thank you. So Silke, where did you first hear about mindfulness meditation? Well, I first started with meditation during a stay at Boston University, mainly just to deal with stress, but I quickly noticed that it also had an effect on the way I interacted with others. I became more present, more open. I noticed some habits of my mind and um, I became less judgmental. And this really sparked my interest into the potential of mindfulness for relationships with others. And how then did you get into workplace mindfulness research? So I first studied in my PhD thesis the relationship between teachers and students. So I wanted to know if mindfulness training affected the way teachers related to their students. And in recent, recent years, my research interests shifted to the interaction of leaders and followers and the potential of mindfulness in corporate trainings at Awaris. Can you tell us more about what the research says about the impact that mindfulness training in the workplace can have? Yes, so I think there are now a couple of studies that combine the findings of single studies into one big study, so-called meta-analyses. And um, similar to clinical studies, these studies find improvements in resilience, well-being, reductions in stress and burnout. And um, in addition, there are also some evidence that um, workplace outcomes like job satisfaction and productivity can be improved, also relationships. And the reason I think why there are so many different kinds of outcomes and potentially many more is what mindfulness is really doing is training core skills like attention, emotion, regulation. And these kind of skills can be applied to anything, to personal well-being, to how I'm interacting with my kids or the way I structure my work. So I think in the workplace context, it is really just as much about being mindful as it is about doing mindful. So in the sense that you do bring mindfulness to your work task. And that's, I think, where the research is getting most interested, uh, most interesting. Darren Good and some co-authors, they visualize this potential flow of mindfulness in the workplace really well in a review in 2016. And their idea was that the mindfulness training first improves these really basic and essential skills like focus, attention, emotion. And these like have some trickle down effects uh, into like well-being, resilience at work, the way you structure relationships and the relationship between leaders and followers as well. So this also explains 
sometimes why there's sometimes just like an overwhelming amount of outcomes that are associated with mindfulness. And what I find really interesting is this link between mindfulness and, and leadership. And I know a lot of our mindfulness teachers in our course do as well. Can you tell us a little more about whether and how mindfulness can help leaders specifically? Yes. Yeah, so I, I really find this a really interesting field of research as well. And um, it's still a very young field. So we don't know a whole lot yet, but it's interesting also because often the follower's perception is being taken into account as well so it's not just the leader that's being researched but also how people perceive that leader so um, right now we're working with some colleagues in australia on the first meta-analyses for mindfulness and leadership and we looked at like all the studies out there and um, to see what the what the overall effects are and there are some studies that show that mindfulness is related to certain kind of leadership qualities, for example, authenticity, humbleness, or also things like greater self-reflection, which is sort of like a core leadership capability. For example, there's this one study by Annika Nübold. She showed that leader mindfulness is related to ratings of authenticity from the follower, and that this link can even be cultivated through training. So the more people train, the more authentic they are perceived by their followers. And it's really just a level of maturity, I think, that authenticity is, um, is showing um, to be able to show yourself in the way you are without oversharing or overbearing on the other. So the right kind of distance, I would say. Another study I'd like to mention is one by Johannes Arendt from LMU Munich. They showed that the satisfaction with the leader is related to the leader's mindfulness score. And that this relationship can be explained by way of mindful communication. So in a way, the inner work that you do with mindfulness sort of can be applied in work through the way you interact and communicate with your followers or with your colleagues in general. And finally, we ran a qualitative study and interviewed some leaders in depth that took part in a long-term training to figure out what they thought um, really changed through mindfulness. And um, what they told us is that really this ability to gain insights in like biases and things they weren't aware of themselves was a really core um, takeaway from them from this course. And the second one was, I think, uh, more bit, that they were more adaptable to change. So in a sense that um, the practice of being mindfulness was considered by a lot of the leaders like a mini miniature practice of agility of mind. You become aware of a habit or you become aware of a thought, maybe like a negative thought about your colleague, and you're just able to let it go and go on with your business. And um, that was really something that, that impressed me a lot. Yeah, agility of mind, that's a really interesting concept. Agility is also a big buzzword at an organizational level. It's something that most organizations these days aspire to. Is there any more research out there that could be helpful to them? Um, there's a very tiny study coming out of Amsterdam that showed, uh, that looked into agile teams and software development. And uh, what they did is um, they had two groups. One did nothing before the meeting. The other did a short mindfulness practice together. I think like a three minute breathing space. And the one that did the little mindfulness practice before the meeting, they rated the meeting as more efficient and the decision quality is higher. What's interesting about that study too, though, was that they didn't want to continue with this practice, even though they found it useful because they found it a bit odd to do this together. 
And um, this really shows that if you do integrate mindfulness-based practices, even just little small ones, it's really important to understand why you want to try something like that as a team or as an individual person. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds really promising. Lots of research out there, lots of promising results. Have you come across any negative outcomes as well? Can mindfulness do bad? <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, that's that's also a really interesting area of research to look into. And um, I guess to answer this question, we have to look at specific workplaces maybe sometimes and what these workplaces want to get out of mindfulness. So one of the first studies about mindfulness in the workplace was published by my PhD supervisor, Harald Wallach, in 2004. And he found that people in a really toxic call center environment were better able to cope with the stress after the training, but they were also more likely to quit the job altogether. So um, in this sense, I think mindfulness improves the kind of well self-awareness that you need to make these kind of informed decisions, while before you maybe just like stayed within this setting, even though you didn't really want to be there anymore. So that if that's a negative or a positive outcome, is like depends perhaps on the viewer. Then there was another really interesting study that created lots of buzz, I think last year or the year before by Andrew Hafenbrock. He found that people were less motivated to do a task when they performed a short mindfulness exercise beforehand. So um, if you looked a little bit deeper into the study, you realize that the type of task that they were asked to do was not exactly really exciting and they received very little pay for participation so to mention that they were not super motivated was probably a pretty accurate assessment. But interestingly, they still performed better on the task compared to the control group. But unfortunately, that didn't make the headline. So um, again, like a mixed bag, I would say, is that a positive or negative outcome? In my own research with the teachers, I also found an overall decline in engagement, uh, which is was obviously a stunning outcome. Um, and I spoke to the teachers afterwards in in-depth qualitative interviews. And what they would say is that they engaged more wisely. So they dropped some commitments um, that caused maybe additional stress and put their effort into other tasks, maybe preparing a new school play or something like that. So I think most likely the relationship to engagement is not linear, but curvy linear. So I think we still live in a society where working a huge amount of hours is seen as a, an accomplishment by some. And in a sense, I think mindfulness practice can help you retain a balanced nervous system, even if you work a lot of hours. But on the other hand, I think there are some people that may realize that their lifestyle is not sustainable and doesn't maybe lead to great results either. And then they change things. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I guess, like you said before, it sounds like that's a, perhaps a positive outcome, but it depends on the people's perspective. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it would be really interesting to investigate this further, you know, like to kind of move away from, oh, it's always good for engagement or it's always bad for engagement. I think that's too simple. But um, I think this, this link between mindfulness and engagement is a really interesting one to look to investigate further. Absolutely. So you have done a lot of research, you've reviewed lots of research that's out there. Do you have a sense of what at this moment some of the challenges or limitations with regards to research for mindfulness in the workplace are? 
Yeah, so the, I think there are a couple of challenges. For one, there's no dominant workplace mindfulness training like MBSR or MBCT. And it would be really ideal if trainings like, for example, the working mind training would become a standard in the field. But it's really unlikely. I mean, what we see in companies is that the companies have different needs. Um, ideally, they all want to have a customized training. So I think that's not going to happen. But it makes, of course, the research a bit more difficult because you're always comparing apples and pears because uh, of different kinds of training length and um, content. Then another challenge or maybe opportunity is there is that um, the research still mo mostly focuses on stress reduction and well-being and resilience but as I mentioned earlier I think there's so much more to look into and I think a third point is that the study quality is often a bit lower in field studies in general and um, things like RCT so like trials where you randomize participants into different types of groups um, that can be easily done in laboratory settings are much more harder to come by in an actual company when you work with leaders. Um, they don't like you, them telling where to go and what to do when. So um, I think it's really hard to retain that kind of study quality in, the, in corporate settings. We wrote an opinion piece, Michael West, Chris Chaskelson and others last year, and we also raised the issue of bringing mindfulness into toxic workplaces and the kind of ethical implications of offering mindfulness in settings like these. So I think it's again like it's, it's a challenge to sort of consider when you as a trainer go into a company and maybe to just check with the company's motivation and sort of also give your feedback about I don't know if the goal is to make participants more resilient so I don't know companies can get more performance out of them is that a good goal or not um, it's always a bit more complicated when you're in that company but it's definitely something to raise and be aware of that it's obviously not a panacea for uh, a toxic leadership style or uh, a company just going crazy in transformation processes so I think that's something to, to be aware of when bringing mindfulness in, into the workplace. And um, in general, I think in this kind of research, there's always a balance between organizational change, structural change, focusing on that, and individual change, um, focusing on changing the employee, changing the leader. And the majority of the mindfulness research right now is really looking on the individual and perhaps with the exception of teamwork, where we see more of, I don't know, the interaction and more like a company level coming into the research on mindfulness. So that's really interesting. What, what's happening with team, teamwork? So there was one really interesting study, really high quality study too, coming from you and Selma Brun. I think two years ago, and they showed that, first of all, mindfulness can emerge on the level of the team. And it's really, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to do with the individual level of, of mindfulness. It's something that when you enter a team that you kind of feel, right? So if there's a team that is characterized by presence, where the communication is non-judgmental, it just has a different feel to that team than if you're a team where people blame each other, for example. And they showed that the more mindful teams were, the lower were the level of relationship conflict, but the higher were the levels of task conflict. So this means these kind of teams are better at arguing about the best solutions while refraining from blaming or putting the other person down. So if, if teams are better at holding conflicting opinions, 
what, what does that allow them to do? Why is that important? So I think it allows them to avoid groupthink. It's a common phenomenon in teams, and it's characterized by refraining from speaking up in order not to disturb the comfort in the team. So um, there are many modern scandals that showed how harmful Silas and Dixent can be. Just think of recent scandals at Volkswagen or Boeing. And this can be very dangerous. Teams abandoning the search for the best solutions because they believe it would hurt the team dynamic or themselves, really. And um, this really interesting research that comes out of Harvard researcher, uh, that came from Harvard researcher Amy Edmondson, and she looked into healthcare teams and the psychological safety that means a nurse feeling safe enough to tell a doctor that he's about to make a mistake. That this kind of psychological safety is predictive of patient safety and even patient survival. So, of course, it's not only about the person needing to speak up, but also about the leader, in this case, the doctor, sort of signifying, hey, it's okay for you to speak up and really living that. And um, I think Megan Wrights wrote a piece in HBR saying, leaders, you're often much, much scarier than you think, that there's some bias on the leader side as well. Yeah, absolutely. And research, so it's incredible how fast research is moving, how much is out there. It's, it's really exciting. At the same time, it can be really hard to keep track of what's being published. So as a workplace mindfulness trainer, how do you best keep track of all the research out there? Do you have to get keep track of it? Is it important? And if so, how do you go about it? So I think it's really difficult to keep track of original research papers as a non-researcher. I think my best advice would be to sign up for master classes, go to the OMC summer school, or if you are part of a larger corporation, hire a research lead that keeps track for you um, of the research. If you really want to do like your own research, I think using sites like HBR or Inc. or section of the NY Time work and New York Times work section, I think these are often a good place to, to go look because really important studies are often recycled here. Great, that's really helpful. So if I think about the customer side now, the organizations that I'm working with as, an, as a workplace mindfulness teacher, what's important for organizations interested in introducing mindfulness to be aware of? So I think the importance of practice cannot be underestimated. And that can be informal practice, um, meaning practice that you take into your workday, but also formal practice, which means really having a time, especially the beginning, where you practice very regularly. I think uh, Megan Wrights, again, found in a pilot study um, with employees that mindfulness works if you work on it for at least 10 minutes per day. And a larger scale study combining a number of studies on the impact of practice time found that the effect of mindfulness practice is associated with practice time. It makes a lot of sense, but it's good to just point that out again or emphasize this point. And the other important point to raise here is that organizations um, ideally should from the start invest in approaches that allow for a sustainable integration of mindfulness within a company. Dentons, it's a legal uh, international law firm, and HSBC, um, they're great examples of companies that manage to develop internal mindfulness trainers, for example. Can you share some examples of how they did this? So HSBC, they started from with a 
bottom-up approach. So they started offering mindfulness-based courses with an external training company for anybody interested within the company. And then they slowly started growing a network of practitioners. And out of these, some mindfulness champions were formed. And these mindfulness champions, along with these external trainers, they can fulfill any demand that is arising in the bank in the long term. Um, so this kind of, um, yeah, these kind of um, embedding of mindfulness in an organization becomes really helpful, um, especially, for example, during the COVID pandemic. Yeah. And I, I love you touching on COVID because we're in the pandemic right now. We're going, you know, going through it. Um, economies worldwide are tanking, organizations are feeling the impact, employees are being furloughed. What, if anything, is the potential of mindfulness in, in these times? So yeah, just to, to bring up HSBC again, um, we just, um, we're just about to publish a white paper with uh, the Mindful Finance Institute and HSBC. And in that, they share that their demand um, of mindfulness has increased fivefold in the beginning of the pandemic. So again, they, they just responded to the demand that was already out there. And because they had these in-house in mindfulness trainers, they could scale it up really quickly and, um, and, and across all continents that they're that they're offering this. So I think um, the potential is really, really high because um, I'm not sure if you've seen these um, really depressing data that shows that levels of anxiety and depression, I mean, they have been going up for years, but um, at the start of the pandemic, we saw another spike in these. So um, at HSBC, when they offer these mindfulness-based courses during the pandemic, they managed to even improve the well-being of people. So I think especially in pandemic, especially in crises, it's, it's really important to, to offer support to employees and to prioritize well-being more than um, in other times, perhaps. But I think it's always good to prioritize well-being <laughs> in general. And where, Silke, would you say the research field is going? What's next for mindfulness in the workplace research? Yeah, so, I mean, just to stay with the pandemic for a while, I think it's not the only crisis, crisis that we will be facing as humankind. Um, and not only humans, but also corporations are facing crises and, um, and disruptions. So I think research about mindfulness as a vehicle for transformational capacities or capabilities would be really, really interesting. So looking into how or if mindfulness can help us face and stay active during those changes that we're facing in culture and for example things like the climate crisis would be really interesting it's something that we are seeing the research field going right now i would also like to see the field move moving away from mere impact research towards more sophisticated models so seeing uh, things like we talked about earlier with the engagement and really consider the implementation so um, research into that. I think there's lots of common knowledge out there and some companies are sharing case studies, but there's not a lot of research about the actual impact of mindfulness in toxic organizations versus in enlightened organizations, for example. And I think that would be something really interesting to, to have some actual really good data about it. And um, the final thing I think that I would like to say is that there's just huge potential um, in this research to go beyond the individual. 
So I think we will see more team mindfulness research and more leadership research and perhaps even some organizational mindfulness research going forward. Fascinating. So lots more to explore. We're coming to the end of the podcast, the time we have together. Before we close, I'd love to ask you one final question that we ask all of our podcast speakers. And that is, what's your number one tip for mindfulness teachers wanting to teach in the workplace? Yeah, so what we, what we see in working with organizations is they are always interested in trainers that really speak to them by having experiences in, in that kind of a field. So I think starting where you have experience just makes a lot of sense. If you're a lawyer, start teaching in law firms. If you're a teacher, start teaching in schools and so on and go from there. Invaluable advice. Thank you so much, Silke, for being our guest today and sharing many fascinating insights on where the research is going with us. Thank you to everybody listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we look forward to welcoming you back to our next podcast. Thanks so much, Leonie, for inviting me.